Welcome again to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Again, this is Chris with you. We're just excited to continue to have these breakout sessions and really just learn more from each one that we're diving into together. I just encourage you to be able to really listen to all of them, take it all in. This is really valuable content that I think is helping a lot of people. I know it's helped me as I'm listening through these. So let's just keep joining in together and listening to them today. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that you guys are uh, here. My name is James Brummett. I'm the host uh, for this session. And I come from uh, Virginia uh, at a church called Journey Christian Church. And uh, we are super excited to be here and to have you for this session where we're going to talk about discipleship, uh, deconstruction, and uh, the next generation. And so obviously this is a huge uh, topic for today and uh, a concern for a lot of people. Daniel, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our group? Yes, uh, so I'm Daniel McCoy. I'm uh, editorial director for Renew, and so I'm full time there and loving it, having a good time. Andrew, oh good. So my name's Andrew Jett, born and raised in New Zealand. My wife is American, um, so. Born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, wow. and two sweet girls, and so life is good. So I'm excited to be here with you guys, and excited to talk about the next generation. Well, there, there's a lot happening in our culture. Um, you know, ten years ago, you didn't hear a whole lot about deconstruction. People just kind of tap it out, and um, and so um, it, that seems to be a trend these days. In fact, it almost seems to be a fad where it's kind of cool if you deconstruct. Um, should we see this? Uh, how should we see this this movement of deconstruction? How should we kind of think about think through that? Yeah, I mean, deconstruction is a term that originated kind of in the postmodern thinkers, so it's it, it meant something there. It's kind of crept into the church as a a familiar term. I'm deconstructing my faith, and um, you know, I, I would say there there's a couple ways to see it. You know, on the one. It, it all hinges on the question of whether there's a historic Christian faith. You know what I'm saying? Like some people would say, there's really not a historic Christian faith. Whatever you want Christianity to be is fine. Uh, it can You can kind of redefine it, and it's, it's all good. Um, and then there are people who would say, no, there is a historic Christian faith, and you shouldn't be messing with it. It's something that God has revealed to us. And those people would tend to say, I would say they tend to say that deconstruction is probably not a good thing. Um, I'll give a little bit more nuance because within that group, you do have some who are going to say, well, we're always kind of changing our beliefs anyway. Sometimes it's closer to the historic Christian faith, sometimes farther away. Um, so deconstruction can be used in a, a like, okay, I'm, I'm actually deconstructing a toxic version of Christianity. I'm, I'm reconstructing in a healthier view. So that, that can be a, a good thing. I'd say the mo- most people are going to use it in terms of I'm leaving the historic Christian faith or at least parts of it behind. So, in that sense, in that sense, I would say negative. Yeah. And I'd probably lean more on the negative side of going again. <coughs> Ten years ago, we weren't even, what is deconstruction? Like, uh, we built something, so why do we need to take it apart? But I think deconstructionism is a sign of the times that we live in the me-centric culture more than ever before. Meism is killing mission. Meism is killing faith because who's on the throne? It's not Jesus. 
We want Jesus as Savior, but getting people to understand him as Lord, oh my word. Like, we want the hell insurance, right? Eternal life is good. King, submitting my life, surrendering who I am to Christ? No. Like, why would I do that? And so I see deconstructionism as more of this wave of going, how do I live my life with myself on the throne? I elevate what I want. I pick and choose, not objective truth, but subjective truth, and whatever the thought and flavor is on TikTok, because TikTok taught me that, hashtag, I'm like, what? You know, but that's where we're getting our sources of truth. And so we don't live in an age of objective truth, it's subjective truth. And so we take little bits from here and here and here and go, okay, that's my faith now. And if we don't do something about it, this tidal wave is just going to keep rolling on. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, where's, where is this trend of deconstructionism, where is that coming from? What's, what's causing all that to bubble up? So, I mean, I've, I've been a student of a thing called intersectional feminism for a few years now. It's not a super common term, but uh, you know, back in the 90s, it's kind of the third wave of feminism. I'm going to describe it because I think that if, if I can describe it, I think it will be helpful in understanding where this tidal wave is coming from. It goes by different names. Um, but anyway, the first wave of feminism you know, here in the States was kind of like the women's right to vote. Second wave was more workplace uh, things as well as uh, you know, abortion. Third wave of feminism was brought in the idea of of intersectionality or the you know that if you if you are a gender minority and a uh, religious minority then you're you have you're at the intersections of oppression if you're a uh, racial minority and a religious minority then you're at the intersections of oppression and so it's a way of grounding ethics in the intersections and so it feels very good it's like okay we have a a way of, of grounding what's right and wrong in the lived experience of oppressed people. And again, it feels good, sounds good. What's the upshot for the church? Well, if you, if you read the literature, going back to the 90s and on, the literature of intersectional feminism basically lists out the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, and among the oppressors would be the church, you know, Christianity, because that would be the that, that would be the worldview, the religious worldview that built, you know, our, our culture. And so along with, uh, you know, um, being, being a man, being white, uh, being heterosexual, being cisgender, uh, along with that would be Christianity. And it's all seen as uh, this, this is a way of oppressing other people through the intersections of, of injustice. So I think that's a huge fuel for the tsunami of, of cynicism. That, that is coming at us that makes people want to deconstruct their the faith that they've been given. Does that sort of make sense? Um, cynicism is a huge word there because uh, the idea is that even if the church is saying, well, this is true, what we're telling you is true, it's not true. It's just a matter of this is their way of maintaining their own power, their own privilege. Uh, when they say this is good and this is evil, that's just their way of marginalizing the, the oppressed. And so uh, it, it teaches students to be very, very cynical toward Christianity. And uh, I think that's a huge reason for the, the tidal wave we're seeing. Andrew, what about you? And I think, well, 100% agree with everything you just said. And I think what's fueling it or casting it out wider is the role of social media today. You know, I mean, 
these devices are actually called telephones, but they're actually like our social media platforms for everything else other than calling people. Like, I mean, most teenagers sleep with this device <coughs> under their pillow. If you want to test this theory out, call anyone under the age of 18 at 2 a.m. in the morning, and they'll go, why'd you wake me up? And it's like, why is your phone on? But we use this as our source of truth. And whatever comes through the screen, I need to accept as truth. Because a lot of people aren't grounded in what is truth. And so they're, they're constructing everything on a very weak foundation. But whatever they hear, with this generation, there are so many more voices speaking in than ever before. And sadly, the Holy Spirit isn't the loudest voice in a whole lot of people's lives. So all these other voices are the ones that are constructing what their faith should be, based on this historic narrative that we're seeing in Rise. Just out of curiosity, how many of you um, are aware of someone either, how many of you personally know someone who's deconstructed their faith? Just out of curiosity. All right. So you, you personally know that. You see the stories, right, nationally, where a, a um, you know, a famed pastor uh, does something. He's written books, or or a this happens a lot in in the Christian music industry, where a lot of you know one time worship leaders are now uh, they're out. Um, what what uh, is there a demographic that you that you guys see this ha- this happening to, or is there or is it just kind of across the board? But I'm seeing it, you know, from 13 up, honestly, mm-hmm. and it's because. They're the ones that are looking for meaning, value, identity. And we have it in the word, but they're looking to it from the world. And the world's voice is screaming at them to do this, 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 and this. And they're going, okay. I, and I would just add, I think it tends to be a bit more of a blue state thing than a red state thing, but I've lived in red states all my life, and it's definitely there as well. I do think that uh, some of it coincides with some of the politics, you know, for better or worse. Yeah, that that's a big deal. I, um, I see a lot of, I don't know about you guys, but I see a lot of, when we talk about the, the politics, and um, it, there seems to be people are more, we, we get... Uh, we get our identity more from our politics. For a long time, I've, I've thought the, the 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 church is divided in America based on politics, not on on theology or doctrines. And a lot of times, our seems like our politics is leading us in a, in a direction. Um, so, okay, so it's kind of across the board, right? Mm-hmm. It can be young or or, or older. Um, what is um, you know underneath all of that? Um, social media has an impact on that. Um, how can we respond? What's our response as a church? How can we, um, you know, used to some people thought, hey, we've got to reach the world. And now they're saying, we've got to, just got to save the church. We've got to preserve the people who are already showing up, let alone, you know, reaching the world. So how do we, uh, how do we uh, guard against or kind of mitigate against this trend, this growing trend in of deconstruction? So as a dad, one of my, I always know my primary role is to disciple my girls. And so from a young age, we'd sing songs every night. And I'm not the best singer, so I won't demonstrate for you. But we, we used to do action songs and they'd love it, right? And the one that they loved was the wise man who built his house upon the rock, right? Because at the end, the house and the sand went splat, you know, and that's fun. The girls at four and six, you know. But that parable 
needs to be a parable that we need to go, how do we build solid foundation? Like, what are we building in our families, in our ministries, in our churches? What's the foundation that we're building our lives upon? Because we're all building our lives. Young people are trying to figure out how to put the pieces together of their life. And I think it needs to go, how do we get back to a solid foundation based on the Word and the Spirit of God together, influencing who we are, our identities, our value, and our meaning and our purpose should be found in Christ and Christ alone. We sing about it, but we don't live it out enough. And we're not passing that down to the next generation. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think uh, we need to start younger. We need to relationally disciple our kids. And we need to make that priority number one. I, um, in our last session uh, in the auditorium, um, I was in, in one of our conversations, um, one of the ladies in our group said that her generation, and she's of a younger generation, uh, desperately wants to be liked. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about hard conversations, it's like I can't have a hard conversation in which I disagree with someone or which I call someone out, so to speak, because then I'm going to be liked. And then she said something about um, they have no foundation for their who they are, mm-hmm. their identity. And so what you just said yeah. just calls back that. Well, and Van has done research looking at Generation Z. Z. But Generation Z, yeah, what's their ultimate goal? <coughs> Pure happiness. And out of that, rooted is financial success. And so we've got to go, what are we aiming our kids to be? What are we portraying them to be? Success, pursuing this American dream at all costs and shoving everything else aside. And I look at society, right? New Zealand's very simple. Grew up with three channels, one, two, and three, right? America, you're like, what is going on? So many, so many more options. But what we've done is we've moved away from simplicity to complexity in our faith. And we need to get back to the grassroots of what what did Moses tell us to do, to talk about it. Day and night, when we walk, when we sleep, when we lay down, this is where it's got to begin. We've got to go, okay, if the church isn't going to do it, well, we are the church, so we should be. In his book, Atomic Habits, Author James Clear says, Environment is the invisible hand that shapes human behavior, which means one of the most important things we can do to help people grow is to create environments that encourage and support the choices that lead to growth. I'm Abby Barris, a designer and ministry veteran, and I would love to help you create an environment that leads to both personal and organizational growth. You can find me at abbybarrisinteriors.com or at churchdesignhelp.com to learn more and to download your free guide to creating spaces designed for growth. What, what uh, um, as we have this conversation in the book that you guys have written, uh, the Real Life Theology Handbook, uh, what was the motivating factor? What's the, you know, where, did, where did this come from? What, where did this idea come from? And why did you guys put it together? Yeah, so I mean, the need to disciple the new generation, for sure. Um, it, it gives a lot of space to be real, and it gives a lot of, there's a lot of apologetics in there because we need to take seriously the things that they're getting slammed with. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was the motive. It's, it's like, let's, let's, you know, let's have theology that we can, you know, help the, the next generation, uh, you know, be able to really accept in a way that's real to them. 
and not just here's what you need to believe. Because when you hear the word theology, you know, range of connotations, he's a PhD, I don't, so he's way smarter, so listen to him more than me. Not true. But it's like, you know, sometimes we approach theology like that, like I've got to have a PhD or I've got to understand this. And we've got to create space where it's okay to wrestle with theology and to go, where am I at versus where do I need to get to? And that's what we tried to do in the book. I loved it because I actually went through it with my daughters. So rich. They're 10 and nearly turning 13. So they proofread it all and said, Dad, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, okay, we'll change that word. But we wanted it to be accessible for people to be able to go, okay, there's this cultural tide slamming against our lives. So how do we build that solid foundation? But you may not be there right now. So how do we give you space and time to wrestle with that? And through it all, we want to teach you truth, but we don't want you just to spout some party lines. So when you get to heaven, it's like, you know, you say the password and you enter in. No, this is your life. And this is the foundation that you can build everything upon. So as these things come at you, you've got that base that will not move. So um, someone said recently that uh, when church becomes an option for the parents, it becomes um, unnecessary for the kids. Um, And then we wonder, why are kids leaving faith? It's like, well, kind of... That's there, but why? Why not? Why is this important that we focus on the next generation? Why? Why can we not just give up the ghost on on that generation and, and abandon them, so to speak? We can't. We can't abandon them uh, in this hour in which they're just getting slammed by so many things. So, yeah. What? What? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, Andrew. stats that totally alarm me is a thirteen to eighteen year old is twice as likely as an adult to say they're an atheist. Huh. And by the time they're 13, their worldview's set. Right. And, and that's why it's like, okay, start younger. Mm-hmm. They're getting slammed younger. Right. So. Yeah, so again, we have the responsibility as the church, not a building, but the people of God, to give them the word of God and the spirit of God to build that as their foundation. Because if they're not going to hear it from us, they're certainly not going to hear it from that and the world. The world isn't going to tell them positive things. You know, and, and one thing I, I train and disciple a lot of young people into mission, full-time work, and one of my always challenges is going, how many voices do you hear in your life? But what's the first voice you hear in your life? And most young people go, well, you know, I check my Instagram, my Facebook, my Snapchat, my, you know, all these other things. And I'm like, where's God's voice in your life? Mm-hmm. And so we have the responsibility to be that and challenging young people to get back to what is true, and what is right. What role, um, as we think about deconstructing, and I mean, what you just said about um, at 13, they're like, yeah, I'm an atheist. You know, their worldview is set by that. I've, I've not heard that before. Um, anybody else, does that frighten you? Just, holy cow. Um, so, you know, I was, I was thinking about... Um, Every church I know, and this is probably true of yours, if it's not, please let me know and I'll, I'd love to talk to you, but uh, most churches struggle in terms of, you don't, there are just very few student ministries or, you know, children that, that are really rocking it. Everybody's like scratching their heads, like, how do we figure this out, right? So when it comes to um, 
reaching and and really discipling this you know this younger generation what what's working and what's not working you know in our in our churches yeah i would i would say what's not working um is the success of the past um you know it 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 has been based on getting a group there and uh, in order to keep that group there it's got to stay fun it's got to stay inspirational and so you have to stay away from the things that are controversial the things that will uh you know cause them to say oh well that's obviously not loving or that's not justice or whatever and so uh you know what what has been the fuel of our success in the past isn't going to carry us in the future i think well hard conversations you know obviously with the theme of this conference um it's got to get we got to be relational um, and I would say Andrew here um, is, is killing it as far as calling students to a higher purpose. And that's that's totally the best way to keep, uh, you know, them. He's, he's brought a lot of uh, students alongside and, and brought them into global missions. And I mean, this generation is ready for something that they can be plugged into, call them to something higher. I would love to, you know, for you to speak into that, because yeah. I think that's the bar for us has been so low. It's like we just want to keep them. Okay, yeah, we can give them apologetics and stuff, but it, you know, we we got to call them to something higher, give them a better vision of what their lives can be about. So, yeah, how, how are you doing that? Yeah, so to answer the negative and then the positive, I think we've got to change our scorecard, right? I'm not from America, so I can say this about the American church, but the American scorecard is bums and bucks. How many bums on seat? How much does it cost us? What about baptism? What if we really went after baptisms, new life in Christ? But that takes time. It's messy. Discipleship isn't something that we go, oh, let's change it to be disciple-making. Like, how do we keep pouring into people time and time again? That's where we're going to see fruit. It didn't happen overnight, but it will happen as we keep working with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And that's really several years ago I started a ministry called MIT Global. It stands for Missionaries in Training. And we exist to mobilize and multiply disciples amongst unreached people groups. And so I target 13 to 18-year-olds. So I've taken 18-year-olds into North Korea, into Somalia, into the regions where most adults don't really want to go. And young people are going, sign me up. I'm working with a kid who's probably in the top 20 in academic team for the whole state of Kentucky. I think it's impressive. And he's like, I'm going to the Balkans. Never been. So next year I'm on a trip to the Balkans to figure out his ministry and his calling. And that's what it's about, going, how do we take young people who are looking for value, meaning, identity, and purpose, and find that in the kingdom cause? And going, right, we want to help you live out your life for a kingdom purpose. What greater purpose is there? I mean, Paul said it, to live as Christ is to die as gain. So I know, hey, if something happens on the other side of the world, know how the story ends, right? We all win. But it's going, how do we encapsulate and <coughs> encourage people to be on mission for King Jesus? Because there's no greater calling in our lives. Right, right from the beginning, God wanted us to know him, to worship him, and to make him known. But we don't really challenge young people in any way, shape, or form. A lot of young people today have low expectations and no opportunity. 
I mean, if you need something done, oh, you need some chairs set up for an event coming up, who do you call on? High schoolers. Why not let them lead that conference? Because it might be messy. <laughs> it might not be excellent. But they're going to bring their excellence as you challenge and you coach them. You know? And so I have young people all around the world going, disciple me because you're willing to. And I'm like, you're in a church. And they're like, my youth pastor doesn't even care about me. And I'm like, oh, that's a problem. We'll get to that later. But how can I help you? You know? And so there's a lot of wisdom in here and going, right, who's someone? You know, you could probably write down a list of three or four young people. Who's someone that you could pour your life into? I'm not the smartest tool in the shed, but I'm sometimes the most open to walking with someone who wants to go, how can I do something with my life to the glory of God? And that's what we've got to do. How do we rally around those first in our own family? That's our primary disciple-making platform. Then how does it start to spread into the communities and the churches in which we're a part of and just elevating and celebrating what God has done in them and what God can do through them? Because there's no greater fuel when you see a young person go, yes, how do I live my life on mission? And so in the book, we wrote the snapshots of people I've discipled. And they're going to places like Somalia and the Balkans. And one girl's going to try and solve cancer. And I have no doubt because she is so incredibly smart in biology. I have conversations. I'm just lost. (laughs) You do your thing. But it's like captivating the kingdom into their hearts and souls and minds, you know, and and it honestly begins, anything begins with prayer, and it's going, how can we pray this to be? You know, I have two simple things I'm praying for my girls, that they will find someone who loves Jesus more than them, and they're of the opposite sex, that they will marry them. (laughs) Two requirements, and I'm saying to God, here are my girls, Use them however you want, but they need to marry someone, boys, who love Jesus more than them. That's the standard. And so we've got to raise the bar in our expectations, but also in the expectations of young people. Because what we're doing right now is a lot of smokescreen and mirrors, and we've got this attractional model. And I take comfort, because I was a youth pastor, right? And I don't envy youth pastors today. But what I look at is Jesus didn't win everyone. And we sometimes feel like we've got to have quantity to matter. Let's look at quality. Let's look at what Jesus did. He poured his life into how many? Twelve. One of them even abandoned him. Hand him over to be crucified, right, for 30 pieces of silver. So we're not going to win them all. But let's be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. And going, how can we pour into them and then multiply that effort again and again? There's got to be movement of the gospel. Another thing that doesn't work, I would say, uh, you guys remember fidget spinners? Yeah. Remember when literally everybody had one? I was a teacher at the time, and uh, the kids would go to school and they would actually say, yeah, I need this. Like, I, I need this because I can't, you know, focus if I don't have it. It was so cool to have a fidget spinner. Um, they were fun, they were popular, uh, and they were good for them. Okay, what happened the next year? Nobody had one. You know, they gave them to their younger sibling, and then even they realized, oh, this isn't cool anymore. Um, it's very, very, it's very, it's very uh, likely, I'd, I'd say, that in our churches, if we focus on, and this is the, the 
faith is fun. It's, uh, it's popular. It's good for you. If we just focus on those things uh, and have an attractional model, you know, they're going to drop it like a fidget spinner. Um, what we have to drill down on is this isn't just fun. It's not just uh, cool and popular. It's, it's not just good for you. This is true. And so that's why I'd say we, we really do have to do apologetics as well with this younger generation. Any youth minister that doesn't know apologetics, I, I don't know how you could even, even begin. I mean, because these kids are getting slammed with so many questions all the time. So uh, I just want to add that in. Uh, create space for those conversations where you can really go deep into apologetics. Um, yeah. When you say apologetics, flesh that out a little bit. I mean, yeah, just, I mean, defending the faith uh, against the things that kind of attack it, uh, whether that be, you know, claims of, of atheism or other religions or <laughs> ideology, you know, like intersectional feminism, um, and also making a positive case for why Christianity is true. Um, you know, so definitely think if we're going to be, uh, you know, reaching the next generation, we have to take their questions very, very seriously. Yeah. So um, I've got some, and you guys may have some questions. We'll do a little Q&A here in a little bit. Um, this whole thing is Q&A, right? <laughs> um, so in the state in which I am from, um, the governor just made a common sense, I feel like made a common sense move um, to um, kind of limit uh, public schools from going down the transgender hole without, and the whole sexuality thing, those conversations without the permission of the parents. Like you have to, like you, you can't go there. And then uh, just, just last week or so, thousands of students in high schools across our state walked out in protest against his deal. So obviously there, I don't know any parents would say, you yeah, know, no, really talk to my kids about transitioning to another, whatever gender. That's cool. And I don't need to know about it. No parents going to say that. And yet thousands of kids are walking out. So there's a divide in families. So where does this, how does the family fit into this deal? How does, how do parents, how many of your parents, parents, so um, what role does the family dynamic, especially as we think about our churches and how do we, how do we help bolster that? Because it's not just, you know, one, you know, hey, we've got them in youth group or whatever, but it's also it's also the family. So how do how do we merge those, and what can what can we do as a as a church to help families in that area? Well, the thing first off, we need to acknowledge that the church has our kids for all of forty hours a week, uh, forty hours a year. We have them for over three hundred. So who should primarily be discipling our kids? <laughs> Who's the one who should be creating the Jesus culture? Because the school certainly isn't, you know. And so we've got to go, it starts with us as a parent primarily and going, okay, what does that look like, you know? And the the sweetest conversations, are honestly, on Friday afternoons, Daniel and I have just been going back and forth a little bit of this, doing thematic devotions with our girls. And it's every day they have a passage that they've got to read and a couple of questions to respond to. And it's just building them up to understand the truth of God's word. Because my kids, great church I'm a part of, they don't even open their Bibles at church anymore. And so, you know, we can't just rely on the church to go fill in the gap. It's got to be this partnership through and through. But we've got to go, it's our primary role lead those conversations to create that Jesus culture 
in our homes, you know, in our communities from the birthplace of the family going out. And so as they leave, I want them to be salt and light. But if they don't know how to, then they're not going to. So it's my role to give them the tools and the understanding to have that solid platform that as things come, then they know what they stand for. And that's what was beautiful going through the book, even <clears throat> building this real-life theology. They're like, Dad, I'm kind of here and I need to get to here. What does that look like in my life? I mean, who doesn't want to have that theological conversation with their kid? Like, that's just sweet. And so it's beautiful. But we can do that. But it takes intentionality, you know. And so often we live. I mean, when you ask people, how are they? Oh, I'm busy. We're busy people. But it comes back to, I think, priorities. What's our priority in life? Yeah, totally. We need to be empowering parents. And uh, we just, as parents, we need to be stepping up. Um, I think that, um, you know, what happens at church is, is very important for the youth programming. But, man, it's not happening at home. It, you're just really fighting against, uh, you're really going uphill. Um, the tools are there. You know, you can do DBS with your kids. You can. You can do three-thirds with your kids. Uh, we're, we're working on some, he mentioned thematic devotions, which are going really well. It's a way of getting our kids to open their Bibles and, uh, and interact with us. It's, it's totally doable. So the tools are there at the time. Uh, you know, are, are we going to be spending the time with our kids for those intentional conversations? Uh, I, I, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that. Thanks again for joining us here at Renew. We really hope that you and your families have an awesome Thanksgiving week. We're not going to have a breakout session on Thursday, but make sure to join us back in next week on Tuesday as we continue to go through these together.